Lesson 3.3.2 W.E.B. Du Bois and the Talented Tenth The first part of this lesson covers Kim Pearson's of the coming of W.E.B. Du Bois. Author's note. This part of my unpublished 2002 essay, Not the Subject but the Premise, Postcards from the Edge of Du Bois' Black Belt, is reproduced here for comment and as fodder. In the body of work upon which I am drawing for my sabbatical project, I consider it to be a failed work with some useful nuggets. So this is the reading of Kim Pearson's failed work. W.E.B. Du Bois clearly understood that journalistic portrayals of African Americans were drenched in racism, and the black journalists had an obligation to serve as the voices of the black nation. In a 1943 article, he argued that black journalists were needed because, quote, the American press in the past almost entirely ignored Negroes. Very little of what Negroes wanted to know about themselves, their group action, and their relationship to public occurrences to their interests was treated by the press. Then came the time when the American press, so far as the Negro was concerned, was interested in the Negro as minstrel, a joke, a subject of caricature. He became, in time, an awful example of democracy gone wrong, of crimes and various monstrous acts. End quote. Franklin. In Of the Black Belt, Du Bois is a tour guide leading, leading us into the real South behind the Bougainvillea and mint julep facade. From the beginning, we know that our guide is black. We are reminded that we must travel in the Jim Crow car. The stage is set by the panoramic view of the region's geography, the stretch of pines and clay, and history. From the time of the DeSoto and the Conquistadors to where Sam Hose was crucified. Quotes from Du Bois, page 103. That Du Bois was playing to a white readership is also clear. At various points, he assumes his imaginary white reader's point of view and then carefully challenges what he sees as commonly held misconceptions. His challenges must be framed carefully for several reasons. They must conform to his evidence. He cannot stray too far beyond his own Victorian sensibilities. And finally, an intemperate tone risks not only alienating his white readers, but could precipitate racial violence. The titles and epigram of the two chapters are noteworthy for their ironic allusions. According to David Blight, the Black Belt referred both to the density of its black population and to Booker T. Washington's description of its rich, dark soil. Du Bois, page 208. While it would have been common to think of a black region as something evil and forbidding, Du Bois opens with haunting lines from the Song of Solomon. I am black, but comingly, O ye daughters of Jerusalem. Du Bois' use of the phrase also connotates a belt holds together the economies of the North and South, the past and the present. The chapter of the quest of the Golden Fleece borrows its title from the myth of Jason, who sets out in search of a golden ram's fleece that he believes belongs to his family. Du Bois may be suggesting that those who are striving for a share of the region's wealth, whether dispossessed plantation owner, northern investor, or struggling black pheasant, is seeking against great odds to recover what each sees as a birthright. 
However, because poetic dissection of the region's economy gives particular attention to the grinding exploitation and racist belief system that spawned and sustained sharecropping and peonage, it is clear that, to Du Bois' thinking, the black peasantry is the heir denied. For Du Bois, Dari County, the Egypt of the Confederacy, is representative of life throughout the New South of that day, from Carolina to Texas across the black and human sea, Du Bois, page 117. At the dawn of the last century, Dougherty County was a faded jewel in the crown of King Cotton, the shadow of a marvelous dream, page 107. It was a land of deserted plantations with nameless northern owners, of dogged black farmers and desolate white widows, of families broken by death, desertion, desperation, and despair. Cotton prices had been falling steadily during the last 40 years of the 19th century. Natural disasters, racism, and economic strife fomented lynchings, demagoguery, and mass immigration to southern port cities and northern factory towns. Implicitly, Du Bois' compact and comprehensive description rebutted the dominant racial mythology of that period. This was the period in American history now known as the Nader. In those days, it was commonly referred to as the Redemption. Jim Crow segregation was becoming entrenched, both in law and custom. Mainstream, academic, popular, and religious discourse characterized blacks as beasts who had contributed nothing to civilization and who would never be more than half-devil and half-child. No less an authority than New Jersey governor, future president, and renowned historian Woodrow Wilson had portrayed the Civil War as a tragic fight between white brothers, and the Confederacy had become known as the Noble Lost Cause. Against this backdrop, Du Bois holds up the people of Dougherty County, taking care to present them as rounded characters, not caricatures. In a Saturday afternoon, he tells us, the county seat of Albany is filled with black, sturdy, uncouth country folk, good-natured and simple, talkative to a degree, and yet far more silent and brooding than the crowds of the Rhinefoss of Naples or Cacrao. We meet Benton, an intelligent yellow man with a good-sized family who might be well-to-do, they say, but he carouses too much in Albany. We see black tenant farmers whose endless toil will never satisfy the absentee landlord, whose hand stretches out of the gray distance to collect the rack rent remorselessly. And so the land is uncared for and poor. Only black tenants can stand such a system, and they only can because they must. Page 107. There were churches and schools that vary from log huts to a great whitewashed barn of a thing that seats 500. Page 108. Mutual aid societies to care for the sick and bury the dead were flourishing. Beyond and over everything, though, there is debt. The merchants are in debt to the wholesalers. The planters are in debt to the merchants. The tenants owe the planters, and the laborers bend beneath the burden of it all. Page 112. Here and there, Du Bois meets a black landowner such as Gaunt, dull Black Jackson, owner of a hundred acres, who declares, I say, look up. If you don't look up, you can't get up, page 112. At the opposite extreme, he describes an encounter with a dispirited, big, red-eyed black who asks for news about the rumored police killing of a black boy in Almany, then adds, 
Let a white man touch me and he dies. I don't boast this. I don't say it around loud before the children, but I mean it. But Du Bois gives us much more than anecdotes. He gives us analysis, as in his advancement of the four reasons for the ragged homes in which the blacks live. Reason one, the slavery-era tradition of giving blacks the worst housing on a plantation had persisted in the post-bellum era. Reason two, the blacks make no demands for better housing. Reason three, unenlightened landlords fail to invest in proper maintenance. Reason four, harsh conditions have forced many blacks off the farm. Du Bois, pages 112-120. He also gives us data on marriage rates, economic classes, and population density. We get a precise breakdown of the class structure that is reminiscent of the Philadelphia Negro, which included a similar enumeration. Here, too, are the talented 10th, the well-to-do, and the best of the laborers, and something like an incorrigible submerged 10th. At least 9% are thoroughly lewd and vicious. Page 121. Doherty County, in short, is a place in which possibilities seem inextricably yoked to pain, where fairness seemed elusive, and where the pluckiest individuals find themselves buffeted by cruel circumstance. Honest and careful study of black life, Du Bois is saying, required acknowledgement of this fundamental unfairness. It also required recognition of the full range of black humanity and the development of its full potential through investments in higher education and the conferring of civil rights. Most importantly, it required recognition of human interdependence. So the Negro forms today one of the chief figures in a great world industry. And this, for its own sake, makes the field hands of the cotton industry worth studying. Page 118. As progressive as Du Bois' vision was for its time, his Victorian sensibilities infected his reporting with class bias and anti-Semitism. Both prejudices reflect blind spots in Du Bois' thinking and interpretation of his own life experience. First, Du Bois' concept of mutuality draws upon Hegel's idea that both master and slave could only attain true self-understanding by seeing themselves as they are seen by each other. As with his acceptance of Hegel's assertion that Africa and her progeny had yet to contribute to history, Du Bois' positions implied an acceptance of race, class, and cultural hierarchies that he would later reject. Second, Du Bois makes several casual references to Jews as avaricious landowners that led to questions about whether he was anti-Jewish. In Of the Black Belt, he alleges that the Jew is the heir of the slave baron in Dougherty, page 112, and that only a Yankee or a Jew could squeeze more blood from debt-cursed tenants, page 113. In a note written for, but not used in the 1953 edition, Du Bois acknowledged that the references illustrate how easily one slips into unconscious condemnation of a whole group, page 210. Du Bois' use of language is particularly ironic in light of the fact that as a student in Europe, he sometimes experienced the prejudices of people who took him to be either a Jew or a gypsy, and he saw bigotry visited upon people who were members of those groups. Lewis, page 141. And that is the end of the reading of Kim Pearson's Of the Coming of W.E.B. Du Bois.